1: Welcome back to Misconduct, I'm Eileen, and joining me as always is Colleen. How you doing, Colleen?
2: I'm good. Uh, this is our last episode before we head out to LA, and I'm excited to get out of town for the
1: weekend and hang out with Laney. and we're going to see Haley. It's going to be really fun. I know. I can't wait to see the guys from Gen Y and Lainey and Haley. It's going to be really fun. And possibly Heidi, right? Um, My niece, your sister, for those who don't know. Yeah, Heidi should be there. And um,
2: maybe Hannah and Esther, too. They're our researchers. They help out sometimes. Awesome. Uh, And they go to UCLA, so we'll be right in their neighborhood, too. So it should be really fun. Awesome.
1: That would be excellent. But now, on to the show. In this episode, we will be discussing the case of Jennifer San Marco a woman who returned to her former job years after being let go and killed six people. People who knew her were shocked at the level of violence, thinking that she was not capable of it. A look into her past showed that the once even-killed woman was suffering from a decline in mental health for some time in the years leading up to the attack. In this episode, we will be discussing who Jennifer was, her background, and what events led up to this tragedy. Jennifer San Marco was born
2: on December sixth, 1961 in Brooklyn, New York, and her life seemed fairly uneventful up until the mid to late 1990s. She lived in Brooklyn through high school and attended Brooklyn College after she graduated, and then she actually transferred to Rutgers in New Jersey before dropping out, before completing her degree. In the late 80s, she moved across the country to California. She had taken a job as a correctional officer at a prison, and she did well in her position. Because she did so well, the prison was surprised when she resigned just a couple of days before her probationary period was over. She gave no reason for quitting, but the turnover rate in that position is fairly high, so it wasn't so uncommon. After leaving the prison, she held a variety of jobs, but her next notable period of employment was when she was hired by the Santa Barbara Police Department as a nine one one dispatcher in nineteen ninety five. Working as a police dispatcher is a high stress job, and you have to pass this like litany of background checks and exams before you can get hired. I mean, actually went through the process maybe like ten years ago or so. I think.
1: Yeah, I did actually. Um, I did you know the sit alongs before the interviews and then interviews and then i passed all that and then came the extensive background check and i mean extensive it's not just like they run your your license or anything it's literally the officer goes through every single part of your life um your family is involved too they have to fill out forms and they talk to your family and interview them they also do unannounced visits and they want all your information i mean all the way back to you being a child, they don't care. They want everything you can remember, you know, where you lived, where you went to school, everything. And also any tickets, any law you may have broken, anything like that all has to just, you have to put it down to the best of your ability. So it's pretty thorough. And then at the same time, you're actually going through medical and psych evaluations as well. So it's just a crazy, it's crazy hard and it's a lot. Unfortunately, you know, for me, um, in the middle of my background check, HBPD had a hiring freeze. So then my life went elsewhere, <laughs> but that's I why I'm not a dispatcher. kind of remember
2: when you were doing this and you had mentioned to me, I mean, I think I must have been in high school or
1: something. Yeah, I think so.
2: But you I, you mentioned that they had come by the house and stuff and I just, it's like- Just unannounced. So intense. Yeah. yeah. I, was, just... I
1: happened to be home from work too. It was so funny. I was working, I was sick, but I was working from home and like, I was in my pajamas. I'm like, oh, hi, officer. I forget his name. So-and-so. so. Ugh. That's so weird to me. I mean- It it is an important job
2: and a stressful job, so I get it. That's why they do all that, yeah. Right. And so all of the kind of point of pointing all of that out is that Jennifer was subjected to multiple psychological exams, but she passed all of them and she was hired. But she only lasted a couple of months before she quit due to stress. And like we said, that's not uncommon. The nature of the job, 911 operators see a high turnover rate. Jennifer had told people in her life that the job wasn't exactly what she expected, and she found that she had a hard time doing her
1: job on a daily basis. In 1997, she took a night shift position with the U.S. Postal Service at the mail sorting plant in Goleta, California. And Goleta is just outside of Santa Barbara. She bought a condo and settled into life in Goleta. And at one point, she actually took a second job a position at a local high school, but quit after just a few months. It wasn't until 1999-2000 that she began having problems and other people in her life took notice. Until now, Jennifer had been living in her condo and had a decent relationship with her neighbors, but then Jennifer started behaving bizarrely. She would be outside at all hours of the night and would be singing loudly, disturbing other tenants. Sometimes the loud singing turned into loud rants. The ranting quickly turned racist in nature, and it wasn't uncommon for her neighbors to yell back at her to be quiet or call the police. One neighbor in particular was a woman named Beverly Graham, whose condo was just across the way from Jennifer's. Beverly would routinely tell Jennifer to quiet down, which would lead to an argument between the two women. Beverly's boyfriend at the time, Eddie, would tell Beverly to just ignore her and that she was, quote, you know, a crazy person but the two argued off and on until 2003 when Jennifer moved out.
2: While at work at the mail sorting plant, Jennifer also had a reputation for bizarre behavior. Her coworkers described her as standoffish when she was first hired, and it just went downhill from there. What started as standoffish behavior turned into a series of bizarre instances witnessed by multiple coworkers. People reported that Jennifer was having conversations with herself while at work, and sometimes it seemed like she was arguing with someone who was not there. It wasn't long before she turned these conversations outward and directed them at her co-workers, and Jennifer, who was white, became increasingly hostile towards people of color, particularly her Asian co-workers. Jennifer seemed preoccupied with the idea that her co-workers were out to get her, and she started having outbursts directed at the people that she worked with. Finally, one day in June 2003, her behavior reached a boiling point. Jennifer had worked herself up while at work and was on another tirade, although this one was bigger than before. It ended up with the police being called because Jennifer had crawled under a mail sorting machine and was refusing to come out. She was handcuffed and wheeled out of the mail sorting plant, and officers took her to nearby Ventura, and she was held for three days on a 5150 psychiatric hold. She was then placed on several months' medical leave after she was released from the hospital.
1: Jennifer returned from medical leave and resumed her position at the mail sorting plant. However, it wasn't long until complaints were filed by co-workers against Jennifer. It didn't seem like she improved much during her leave, and her tirades and racist remarks against her co-workers increased. Several co-workers came forward to discuss Jennifer talking to herself and making derogatory racist remarks against them, and management decided it would be best to terminate her employment. According to those present, she was called into management's office, escorted out, and not seen again. Jennifer left California shortly after being fired from the mail sorting plant in Goleta. She was put on medical disability and decided to visit her family back east. She started the journey in her car, but stopped when she got to Milan, New Mexico. Milan is a small town not far from the Arizona border the population is under 5000 including the state prison that employs the majority of the town. Jennifer settled in Milan and quickly got the reputation as the quote you know crazy lady and her mental health had taken a significant downturn after she left california. She started visiting municipal buildings in Milan and harassing employees she took particular issue with an employee at the utilities office and would visit often to yell at that employee and make racist statements and strange accusations against them. She
2: would be asked to leave, and sometimes she would be removed by the workers there. She'd make a scene on the way out, and they would see Jennifer sometimes circling the parking lot in her car. It got so bad that the targeted employee's boss would have them hide out in another room when they would see Jennifer coming into the office. In November 2005, Jennifer was still in Milan, and she had another notable run-in with Milan residents. At this point, Jennifer had started hanging out in the parking lot of a local post office. and People had seen her before, and she would drive her car to the parking lot, get out of the car, and then she would kneel to the ground and pray. Sometimes she would do this for an extended period of time, but Milan, being as small as it was, people for the most part knew who she was. In addition to harassing city employees and ranting against minorities, Jennifer had also started dining and dashing out of local restaurants. Police had also received several calls where people complained that Jennifer was at the gas station and she would, like, take off her clothes and be wandering around. There was also a record of Jennifer applying for two business licenses. First was for a cat food company, and the second was for a newspaper she intended to start that she wanted to call the racist press. Oof. Both licenses were denied. Not everyone in the town had bad experiences with Jennifer, though. Some people saw her nearly every day and said she was always very polite towards them. She reportedly paid her bills on time. She didn't get into issues with any of those people like her landlord. You know, she didn't have recurring issues with them. However, all of these people acknowledged that they didn't think that she was necessarily of sound mind either. And towards the later half of 2005, Jennifer's rants became focused on minorities and her old coworkers. She seemed to think that her old coworkers were conspiring against her, but it's not known what she believed they were conspiring to do.
1: One day, Jennifer was kneeled by her car in the post office parking lot, and the manager of a nearby mental health clinic saw her talking to herself. The manager approached Jennifer and asked if she was okay. Jennifer replied to her, quote, They pray before they get in. And when the manager pressed Jennifer on who she was talking about, Jennifer told her that she was referencing her brother and her sister who were there with her. The manager had worked in the mental health field for over a dozen years and decided to call the police so they could have Jennifer psychologically evaluated. The manager left the parking lot before the police came, and the police said that they didn't have a record of the complaint. Although I think it's clear that Jennifer's psychological state was in crisis and she was in need of professional help, many people who came in contact with her were insistent that they didn't think she was dangerous. They felt bad for her because they thought she needed help, but they weren't afraid of her. And we know that this is the case with the vast majority of the mentally ill. They are much more likely to harm themselves or fall victim to a crime than commit a violent crime against another person.
3: There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
2: Jennifer visited a local pawn shop in New Mexico in late 2005, where she asked to purchase a gun. Now in New Mexico, gun laws are significantly more lax than in California, but you still need to pass a background check to buy one. Jennifer had never been arrested for any of her disturbances, so there was no record of those incidents that the citizens of Milan had pretty much grown used to. Her stint on a psych hold in California also did not show up on the background check for some reason. It's weird. And with that, Jennifer was able to purchase a 9mm handgun for $325. In late January 2006, Jennifer drove her car from New Mexico back to California, back to her former condo building in Goleta. Shortly after 7pm on January 30th, 2006, Jennifer climbed over the back of her former neighbor Beverly's patio and let herself into the condo through the unlocked sliding glass door. Jennifer shot Beverly once in the head at the bottom of the stairs and then she left the apartment. Beverly's body was found the next morning by her boyfriend and he immediately assumed that she had fallen down the staircase accidentally, but police informed him that she had been murdered. According to the medical examiner, Beverly would have died
1: quickly and likely did not suffer. After shooting and killing Beverly, Jennifer drove her car to the mail sorting plant where she used to work. The plant required that you have an access card for the perimeter gate, but Jennifer just followed a car in and held that employee up at gunpoint to take their ID badge to gain access to the building. Jennifer then shot two other people in the parking lot before entering the building. Once inside the building, she shot four more people. Survivors said that it seemed like she was targeting specific people, and all of the victims were minorities of varying races. Many of the 80-plus employees at the plant at the time of the shooting were able to escape, terrified but unharmed. Many of them were able to run to safety when Jennifer ran out of bullets and had issues reloading. And after she reloaded the gun, Jennifer then turned the gun on herself and committed suicide. Five people died at the scene at the mail sorting plant, and one woman was transported with severe injuries to the hospital where she died the next morning. In all, Jennifer murdered seven people before killing herself. The victims were 54-year-old Beverly Graham at her old apartment
2: complex, 42-year-old Nicola Grant, 44-year-old Charlotte Colton, 52-year-old Lupe Swartz, 57-year-old Dexter Shannon, 37-year-old Z Fairchild, and 28-year-old Malika Higgins, who had actually just come back from maternity leave.
3: The apparently
2: targeted nature of the attack raised the question of whether or not Jennifer was purposefully targeting minorities that she had spent years ranting about. The only victim who was not a person of color was her neighbor Beverly, but Jennifer and Beverly had a long history of arguing during the years that they had lived in the same
1: complex. Police later found writings in journals by Jennifer that indicated that she believed her former workplace and coworkers, Santa Barbara County PD, and the hospital she had been committed to all had been engaging in a long-term conspiracy against her. With Jennifer dead, this was taken and accepted by law enforcement as the motive that spurred her rampage. So for final thoughts... Um... Through researching
2: this case, I became familiar with the origin of the term going postal. And I'd obviously heard that phrase before. It's popular. I mean, maybe it's more popular in the 90s, but it's an American slang term. It basically just means you're so angry that you act out uncontrollably. And it popped up in the early 90s after a series of high-profile workplace shootings that took place in U.S. postal offices or buildings.
1: Yeah, I remember when Going Postal came out and you know because yeah, there was like a slew of shootings and you know post offices and you know though it's kind of nowadays it just kind of seems pretty insensitive to say that now i mean yeah you it kind of does i had saying I... going columbine you know i mean it's yeah, like it's okay similar let's... to that i think yeah i mean i know one's children but still it's like it's just kind of funny how it's changed through the years i'd I don't think I say that anymore, but I remember in the 90s, I would say it for sure.
2: Yeah. To me, it seems like a very 90s term. I didn't know it was related yeah. to that. And a lot of those cases, I think, had been linked to people who are suffering from mental health issues.
1: Exactly. So,
2: yeah. yeah, it does seem kind of insensitive now, but you kind of know where mm-hmm. it comes from. And this episode actually reminded me of the previous episode we did on Sylvia Segrist. Mm-hmm. And we don't know what Jennifer's diagnosis was, but it was clear she was mentally ill. It kind of reminds me of the issue with Sylvia's case where people knew she was ill, but they didn't think that she was so much of a danger to other people as she was to herself or that they were afraid something bad was going to happen to her, not that she was going to do something bad, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, like we said, most people who are mentally ill usually fall victim to violent crime or harm themselves. Um, so it makes sense that nobody thought she was a threat because most of the time, you know, people aren't in- until they are, but I guess that's just like with, you know, even the nice, normal, quote unquote, person next door, you know, you don't realize something's wrong until it's too late. Do you think that it was preventable in any way? Uh, I feel like that's hard to know. Um, I don't know. I feel like when somebody has their mind made up to do something, um, especially somebody who's feeling like there's some conspiracy against them. And I mean, they're under some kind of delusion. That I don't know if anything could really stop them, um, other than just her being involuntarily committed, I guess. But like, should we do that? I I don't know. You know, what do you think? I don't know I if there is a right answer because I kind of
2: struggle with that too. Yeah, like, I think there were attempts made that to have her evaluated, and those were valid, huh. like valid attempts to be made. Mm-hmm. But there's only so much that you can legally do when you intervene. So I'm, I again, I'm not sure what the you know, correct answer is here. I get it's an ongoing, I think, debate kind of right. in the united states like what actions can be taken what is too far what is not enough etc
1: yeah exactly it's just yeah hard to know i think i don't think we
2: know the answer on this podcast yeah
1: exactly right
4: good morning let me start by sending the city of galita's condolences to the families and friends of these victims An act of violence is always a shock to the soul, but especially in a small community such as ours, where our neighbors are our friends and where violence of any kind is extremely rare. As the mayor of the city of Goleta, I want to acknowledge the rapid response by the Goleta police force. Within minutes after shots were fired, the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Department and their partners in the city of Goleta, the city of Santa Barbara, the Santa Barbara County Fire Department, and the UCSB Police Department mobilized to ensure the safety of our surrounding community and the employees within the postal facility. I would like to acknowledge the extraordinary efforts of individuals and agencies who worked throughout the night to ensure that our community was safe, protected, and informed. We as a community are extremely saddened by this act of violence. A day at the office should not result in death. Our community stands together in prayerful solidarity with all whose lives are affected by this tragedy. The city stands ready to help in any way. Thank you.
2: And that wraps up our show for this week, but thank you for listening. Before we go, we have some housekeeping.
1: We want to say a huge thank you to some of our listeners who took the time to leave us a five-star review. Thank you to Ishimoy and BSATP, sorry if I butchered that, uh, for your reviews. Your reviews help us out a lot, and we really appreciate you taking the time to leave us the feedback. We also want
2: to say a huge thank you to Andrea, Jean, and Jen for your Patreon support. We couldn't do that without you guys. You guys help keep the show going. And if you'd like to
1: see what we have to offer, you can go to patreon.com misconductpodcast. And do you want some Misconduct merch? Well, guess what? We have a store set up. You can order t-shirts, mugs, hoodies, water bottles, magnets, and more. If you're interested, you can go to our website,
2: www.misconductpodcast.com slash store. And remember to always use the
1: discount codes they have available. Stay tuned till the end to hear a word from our friend Allie from Insight with her new podcast, The Dough Files. And that wraps us up for another episode of Misconduct. Thank you so much for joining us. If you have a second, head on over to our Facebook group to discuss this week's case. We love our group, and we love being able to interact with you guys. So if you're not a member, join, and one of our mods will add you ASAP. We love to hear your thoughts and opinions on the cases, so hop on over and let us know what you think. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at misconductpod. We want to give a huge shout-out to the Blank Tapes for our intro and outro music. Be sure to look them up on Bandcamp to check out more of their stuff. And if you have a case you'd like to see covered, drop us a line. Send it over to our new email address at hosts, H-O-S-T-S, at misconductpodcast.com. And we will see you next week.
0: Hello, dear listeners. My name is Ali, and I'm the host of a new investigative series, The Doe Files, a series out of respect for those who have managed to slip between the cracks. Those who have lived through so much pain, and yet there was little closure or justice for them or their families. They are given numbers, nicknames, mainly loosely based on John and Jane Doe. They have their own Wikipedia pages, and they have faces... But unfortunately, for whatever reason, we still don't know who they are. The Doe files hopes to give these victims a voice and a chance for us to try and learn more about them and who they may be. The Doe files is a production of Insight Podcast. First episode, we will learn more about Little Miss Lake Panzer Coffee. Listen from March 2nd on iTunes or your favourite podcast app.